0: Good evening. Sorry. Good evening, everyone. Broadcasting live, uh, September first, two thousand fifteen. Today we officially have a home. to Bond Street South. Can we get a picture up? Has everyone seen the picture?
1: Sure. Learned how to do that yesterday, and
0: can you put a picture? Yeah,
1: it'll take me just a minute to uh, remember where that was.
0: Okay, I got it. I'm ready. Okay. This is our new home. And right here, I've put the. Today we went and moved in, and I put the Dhamma flag. Someone sent us the flag. Well, we got one flag so far. And it was the Dhamma wheel flag, and I put it here in the window. But then I forgot to take a picture of it so I have to go back and do that right now I'm back in Stony Mm -hmm. Creek but this is uh, our new home I was thinking maybe we need a sign somewhere we'll put a sign maybe here in the window I don't know what kind of sign we'd put Thinking, I'd like to put something that said uh, McMaster Buddhism Association, so this could be the home of that association, maybe.
1: That would be nice. Did they have any kind of a logo or anything like that?
0: No, there's nothing yet. What we are doing is there's this fair, right? So, we're going to have a table at the fair on the 9th so on the 8th on the 7th actually we're going to have a meeting at the house Two bond street to talk about the fair and to put together this display they um the president got a three three panel display board already so i don't know what the one that you got robin what what is it like is it like a professional one like one of those expensive ones or is it just
1: no it's not an expensive one it's it's the one kids use for middle school uh, science fairs and things i think we had looked at at one on amazon but i can bring Uh, it up just in case you ever need it for anything else
0: maybe we will anyway let's get started on our session tonight so that's just some news yay for us Uh, but let's get into the quote robin would you do us the honor
1: Yes. Develop the meditation that is love, for by doing so, hatred will be got rid of. Develop the meditation that is compassion, for by doing so, harming will be got rid of. Develop the meditation that is sympathetic joy, for by doing so, dislike will be gotten rid of. Develop the meditation that is equanimity, for by doing so, sensory reaction will be got rid of. Develop the meditation on the impure for by doing so, attachment will be got rid of. Develop the meditation that is the perception of impermanence, for by doing so, the conceit I am will be got rid of.
0: Hmm. Immediately I wonder what the heck does sensory reaction mean? It's an interesting, interesting, It's an interesting translation, actually. Reaction, reactivity, because as we talk about that, right? We're talking about becoming free from reaction, not reacting, and that may be a good translation here. The word they use is but the word Buddha uses patika. Patika usually means uh, aversion. It's a it's a part. It's a description of the aspect of. Uh, the salient aspect of an anger based mind so a dosa mula citta, an anger, a mind that is a mind state that is rooted in in anger uh, is called patiga sahagatang. no patiga sorry patiga connected with patiga with aversion so patiga means uh, like an attacking pati means against so it means literally like knocking against but um here actually the 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 pali english dictionary says sensory reaction which is interesting so it's an interesting word because that's really it it can be positive or it can be negative but upeka is what frees you from that this list of meditations is noteworthy in that it shows it's not just one meditation but the, the list is actually even more noteworthy in the context. The context is Majjhima Nikaya 62, the Maha rahulavada Sutta, the greater discourse on giving um, instruction to Rahula. Rahula, as we know, was the Buddha's son. The Buddha had a son and a wife. Mm-hmm. So this this talk about monks having wives still not valid because he had them when he was not a Buddha uh, before he even became a monk. So if you know the story: he was a prince, and he had a wife, and he had a son, and he left them both behind to seek out a means of attain of realizing the path that leads to cessation of suffering and anyone who 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 criticizes the buddha for it should look at the results and see how both his wife and his son became monastics and enlightened monastics as a result his father became an anagami i think and his mother became a his mother died when he was five years old, but she became an angel, and he taught. She listened to him when he taught the Abhidhamma up in heaven. This is all tradition, the tradition, and so he taught her as well. I mean, it seems a skeptic could say, "Well, it seems like the, the they made it. They tried to make it very clear that he helped his whole family, but he ended up, if the tradition is to be believed, he ended up ha- helping more than even his immediate family." Ananda was a relative of the Buddha. Devadatta was a relative of the Buddha, Anuruddha, Mahanama, one of the Mahanamas, a different, not, not the one that ordained, um, Upali, and and more. A lot of relatives of the Buddha became monks, and became enlightened. Devadatta didn't become enlightened, but he eventually gained gained something, and is said to be destined to become a pacheka Buddha in the future. Anyway, so this is to Rahula, who is the Buddha's son, who became a novice. And why it's interesting in the context is that um, the Buddha, first of all, the the introduction, the Buddha gives Rahula some instruction when they're going on alms round. He says that form is to be regarded as non-self this is not this is not mine this I am not this is not myself this should be seen with right wisdom as it is and Rahula asks only form and the Buddha says no form, feelings, recognition, thoughts, consciousness. And when he says this, Rahula thinks to himself, how could I go on alms round, worry about food when I've just been taught this by the Blessed One? So he goes without food that day. And he sits, he goes and sits by a tree And then Rahu, and then Sariputta comes and tells him to practice mindfulness of breathing, anapanasati. And the commentary says, Sariputta gave this instruction not knowing that the Buddha had just given him a different meditation subject. So Sariputta comes; he's he's been taught this profound teaching on non-self and he's sitting there meditating on this or trying to see this in in the five aggregates so practicing vipassana and then sariputta comes and tells him to practice anapanasati so a little bit confused in the evening rahula goes to see the buddha and asks him how do you practice anapanasati how should anapanasati be practiced so that it's of great fruit and benefit And the Buddha basically ignores his question. Or he gives one of these answers that puts the question aside for the moment and explains something else first. And so he doesn't just mention all these other types of meditation. He starts by talking about the four elements. Goes back to his original teaching. Talks about earth, air, earth, water, fire, air, space element. And then he gives these, he gives five similes that are similar to the ones we looked at last night based on the five elements. He says, develop meditation that is like earth. For when you develop meditation that is like earth, arisen agreeable and disagreeable contacts will not invade your mind and remain. Just as people throw things on the earth, but the earth is not repelled, humiliated, or disgusted, therefore, Be like the earth, be like the air, be like fire, be like water, be like space. And then he talks about all these other types of meditation. So these first five are not real meditations, although meditation on the five elements, the four elements, and the space element is proper vipassana meditation. But then he gives these, he says, develop meditation like earth. But he's, he's talking about not reacting because the earth doesn't react when people urinate or defecate or try to dig it up. Be like the water because the water doesn't doesn't fuss no matter what people throw or drop in the water. Be like fire because fire burns everything and is not repelled by it. So be like the elements. In essence, this is a teaching to be natural. He's talking about this idea of... Um, Returning to nature and giving up this artificial, complicated, unwarranted uh, attachment, reactivity to things. Is it shows that nature doesn't, it's not nature to do these things. Anger isn't a an part of nature. Greed isn't a part of nature. Delusion isn't a part of nature. These are things that have we've developed, constructs that we've created. Nature just is. But then he talks about specific meditations that one should practice. So he says practice loving-kindness, practice. He wants to be clear with that, with with Rahula, that it's not just anapanasati, not to fixate just on the breath. So he says love, compassion, the four brahmaviharas are useful. Foulness is a useful meditation. The impure, as he translates, right? And then he says develop meditation on the perception of impermanence. Because this is the most important, the conceit "I am" will be abandoned. That's the one that really cuts to the root. Because you can you can practice foulness and abandon lust, but it's temporary. You can you will still give rise potentially to lust for as long as you still have attachment to self, as long as you still have the "I" belief, conceit. But then he says, what I don't think is in the quote that we looked at, he says, practice mindfulness of breathing. So he does come back come back to the question. And, he, and now he answers the question. He says, one goes to the tree, and he goes through, goes to the root of a tree or an empty hut. And then he goes through the means of practicing on the First, as a summit to practice, to tranquilize the mind and the body. Uh, and then to liberate the mind, liberate the body. But then, then he, he points out that one should breathe contemplating impermanence. So to contemplate impermanence, it's required that one focus no longer on the breath, but on the four elements uh, that make up the breath. So the breath is actually not breath. It's sensations of earth, air, water, and fire here, 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 and in the stomach. So by focusing on the stomach, we focus on the air element, mainly this tension in the stomach which is coarse and easy to observe but it allows one to see impermanence because it's not stable it's not always going to be smooth going the way you want it to be and as a result one will be able to contemplate fading away, cessation relinquishment and that's it When mindfulness of breathing is developed and cultivated in this way, even the final in-breaths and out-breaths, meaning when you die, are known. So the the moment when you die, you die mindfully. This is the teaching he gave to his son. So it's a rather comprehensive set of meditations. Maybe not comprehensive. A a complete list of sorts, you know. It's like if anyone took this, they could take it as a grocery list of practices to do. There are other lists, similar lists, different lists. But this is one such list that gives you an idea of sort of an overview of different meditations that are useful. Of course, he doesn't include mindfulness of the Buddha in there, which is also considered a useful one. That's our quote. Does anyone have any questions?
1: Is equanimity not a proper base camp for one to use while seeking the Summit to Enlightenment?
0: I don't know. I mean, the problem with seeking out equanimity is it potentially leads to avoidance or leads to cultivation of formations like artificial equanimity. Many kinds of equanimity. The equanimity that you want to find is based on insight. It's based on mundane wisdom, mundane insight into the three characteristics. Once you see the three characteristics, equanimity comes naturally. Once you're truly equanimous without even trying, but equanimous because you just know things as they are, there's no intention on your behalf or no seeking out of equanimity. You just are equanimous because you see there's no benefit in reacting. That is is really the final moment before enlightenment. The next moment there's the cessation. There's the next moment there's a realization of impermanent suffering and non-self. The moment after that or a couple of moments after that, is cessation, which is manganyana, palanyana, the attainment of Nibbana. So I wouldn't seek out equanimity exactly. I would seek out insight. Practice, the word Satipatthana Vipassana is the most useful description of meditation that you can find. It's mindfulness for the purpose of attaining insight.
1: How can you be in a happy state in the way of satipatthana vipassana?
0: If you're looking to be in a happy state, you've got a problem because you're no longer objective. So that's something you should work on. You should apply satipatthana vipassana. Or supply satip, apply satipatthana to attain vipassana about your desire to attain a happy state so that you no longer wish for one. Because as long as you're looking for one, you're going to be a subjective partial and as long as you're partial and subjective you'll never see things clearly you'll never attain equanimity So, the equanimity isn't about the the peace of the equanimity it's very peaceful but equanimity is fearlessness not being afraid not being dependent not clinging (inaudible) anisito javiharati dwelling independent (inaudible) not clinging to anything in the world
1: Bhante, did venerable Rahula die earlier than the Buddha? Do you know what happened? If so,
0: if I remember correctly, very little is said about Rahula. Speculation is that, as the Buddha's son, he didn't want to be, um, he didn't want to be somehow the object of, of people's. Uh, he didn't want to be in the spotlight because he f- felt that it would lead to favoritism, etc. But I think that's just speculation. Just give me a second here. I'll find, let's find the canonical. Rahula. Yeah, he predeceased the Buddha and even Sariputta. And the place of his death is given as Tavatingsa. For twelve years he never laid in a bed, never lay in a bed. But that's it. So not much is known. But he died in the in heaven it says he died in Tavatingsa, which is interesting because that's would be where his mother was reborn. So maybe he went back to see his mother before he passed away. But he passed away even before Sariputta who was his teacher. Which is interesting. Asoka it says built a chaitya in honor of Rahula to be specially worshipped by novices. That's interesting. We don't have we don't have a record of where he built that chaitya. But there apparently is a Rahula Chaitya be honored by novices, to be worse respected by novices, because Rahula was the consummate novice, the ideal novice. Kind of.
1: The word, therefore, should arise in the mind at the same location as the object itself. To me, the mind feels somewhat formless. What do you mean by location, and how do I locate it?
0: Hmm. well when you know that your stomach is rising your mind is in the stomach i mean it's one way of explaining it i mean it takes a bit of practice to get that but you'll see that your mind it's as though your mind goes to the stomach you're right mind doesn't take up space mind doesn't have location exactly but the best way to understand it is that the mind the point is that the mind isn't up here thinking rising falling the mind should be down in the stomach I mean, it's figurative language, it's not exactly precise, but.
1: Why doesn't a person just shave their head, put on robes and join a monastery instead of traveling to, say, Sri Lanka to be ordained?
0: Well, that's what you'd do if you went to Sri Lanka. I mean, if you're talking about why not just join the monastery here, well, why not, sure. One reason would be monasteries in Sri Lanka tend to be a little more um, authentic or can be a little more authentic, you know, like they're in a forest or they have caves or so on, and they have teachers who are well-respected and revered. And they're in a village where you go on alms round every day, and people support the monastery. Traditional is maybe another way of exp- of describing them. But I think Sri Lanka is a really good place to do it. the The point is the the atmosphere in Sri Lanka is probably better for the most part. But absolutely, there's. But if you're talking about ordination, going if you you can't just show up at a monastery with robes and a shaved head and they just let you in. They're not going to let you in. they might if you had white robes for example but if you tried to pretend you're a monk they'd kick you out right away because it's it's a it's a big deal to become a monk and you have to be accepted you have to be observed you have to follow rules so if you just showed up and said hey look i'm just like you guys they'd say no no you're not because you're not you haven't been accepted by the sangha and to be accepted you have to be grilled you have to be trained there's a process to it. If you showed up in robes and asked to be let in, it'd be probably hurt your chances of ever ordaining, because it would be a sign that you you don't. Well, I mean, to some extent. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's an interesting thing to just think that putting on robes and a, and shaving your head is it makes you a monk. I mean of course there are real monks who are quite corrupt but that's not the fault of the system it's the fault of those monks the system is is important
1: is there something given to an ordained monk to show that they're a monk paperwork or a certificate or something or it
0: can be i mean there's i mean it wasn't in the buddha's time
1: but today, is there something like that? or
0: Depends on the monastery. In Thailand, there's a big certification process. I've got a monk certificate from Thailand.
1: Nice.
0: I've even got a monk passport, but it went through the laundry, and it's mostly just deteriorated by now.
1: Oh, there's that impermanence. Yeah. Doesn't seeking insight protect, prevent objectivity?
0: and we need to get him on here and answer that question himself because I know he doesn't believe that I mean these are words right but seeking seeking, seeking insight doesn't that prevent objectivity it would if you preferred insight over delusion say right if you had this preference and when delusion arose you got upset based on it if delusion upsets you then yes Um, the preference in that case it it sounds kind of weird to say but if your preference was to the extent that you disliked the delusion you got upset by the delusion when you realize, oh I was so deluded there it makes you upset what we're doing in meditation is being objective so if you want to really be nitpicky you could say well, you want to be objective, right? Or you're trying to be objective. But it's a bit silly to say that, right? I mean, it's like you want not to want. I don't know. I mean, no, we're talking about the opposite of wanting. We're talking about the opposite. Whatever the opposite of being partial is, that's what you know, they were attempting to do. But it's uh, it's not even an attempt. It's just, a. It's if you could, let's put it this way. It's like a realization. Preliminary realization that subjectivity, partiality, is is a problem, is problematic, right? Realizing that it is <laughs> to not be preferred, right? It is it is preferable to be objective.
1: Hmm?
0: So, in, in you could actually argue that in one, in that one instance, for sure, you are not objective but it's not even true. It's a realization. Once you realize that anger is bad, give an example, anger or lust, once you realize that lust is problematic, you become partial against lust, but it's it's objective, you see? It's based on logic and reasoning. It's not based on partiality. So what we're talking about is not that you ever judge things. You don't ever judge things. Sure, you judge things. You judge everything you judge bad deeds to be bad you judge good deeds to be good and more than that you stop judging deeds you judge seeking deeds seeking results to be problematic but there's a judgment there but it's a judgment not based on partiality it's a judgment based on insight and wisdom so the preliminary insight is there anyone who has seen other people die or get old or get sick or start to realize that they are going to get old, sick and die, comes to realize that addiction is problematic. There's a flaw in chasing things, in clinging for things, clinging things to things. So there, then there's a partiality against clinging to things. There's a partiality for being objective, but it's not partiality. It's a judgment based on, on insight preliminary basic non non non-meditative based exact not exactly meditative based but but it's based on wisdom that's that's what happens i mean everyone comes to meditation out of wisdom they don't come to meditation out of greed thinking oh gimme 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 they do for first if they're looking for tranquility people will come to meditation wanting to bliss out and these are the people who sit there and like to smile a lot and when you try to get them to be objective they freak out and get angry and and so on so seeking objectivity does it lead to partiality no seeking sorry seeking insight if if a person as i said was was obsessed with insight may i get i want to to know something So yeah, I guess actually the answer is yes, because seeking insight is always a problem. It always has been a problem. That's why we make it clear you're not practicing vipassana. You're not sitting there and trying to understand things. You're observing. You're practicing satipatthana. You're observing, and whatever insight comes, it comes when it comes. But I actually agree completely, because a lot of people will sit there Wondering why insight hasn't arisen, when is it going to arisen, they have this this clinging to it. And if they were to focus on that, if they were to look at that desire for insight, they would they would progress in the meditation. They would gain true insight.
1: When attaining nirvana, does one have to leave the body?
0: There's no one to there's no one or no body. So there's no such thing as one leaving the body. One is just a conventional, and body is just convention. But, but conventionally speaking, nibbana has been said to be in here, in this six-foot frame. So no, there's no leaving the body, in a conventional sense. It's probably the answer I should have given. mingye Bayama Madjai Kalevare. Masaming Yehwa Bayama Madjai Kalevare. I'm misquoting that I think. The end of the world is found in this six foot
1: frame. Bhante, what are the main things a lay person should do to have a good life?
0: Oh, it's a bit of a uh, difficult answer. Um, Question, There's, there's a lot, you know, and the Buddha has taught quite a bit. I guess one thing that makes it difficult is... Lay life is always going to be problematic, and we don't have answers for all of the problems that confront lay people. You're going to have crazy problems. I just met with an old, an old, one of my oldest friends, who I've, who, you know, I've known since I was very young. On my way back from the university, you know, we we both grew up, thousand, you know, hundreds. Maybe a thousand, I don't know, hundreds of miles from here, hundreds of kilometers from here. And yet we met at the bus stop today for the second time. We met a couple of weeks ago at the bus on the bus. Because he works just down the road, actually, which is bizarre. And he was with he had a girlfriend and she was pregnant and she lost her child and it, she, it was, she had other children, and she was living with her, with the father of those children, so it was all mixed up. And just listening to him tell, I mean, how do you answer that problem? I mean, now he's alone, so it's a little easier. He, the problem would be ameliorated by meditating, which, I mean, is always a good go-to answer. Meditation will solve a lot of your problems. Meditation will allow you to live very well as a layperson. Provided you also, you know, need morality, keeping the five precepts. But there's a lot more. A really good sutta is the uh, Sigalovada sutta. It talks about the kind of friends you should keep, and discer- reminding us to be discerning in regards to people. So there are good friends and bad friends. Um. How to avoid ruin. It's a really good sutta for lay people. It's it's what all the traditional Buddhists will point to. Any of my monk friends in Asia, if you ask them about being a lay person, they'd immediately point you to the Sigalovada Sutta. We have to learn it. I had to learn the basics of it for my first Dhamma. I took a, a Dhamma exam. I took one exam and passed one exam in my life in Thailand, a monastic exam. You know, not a big deal, but it was sitting in there with all the novices. Taking that exam was fun. I spent a whole year studying on my own, memorizing these things on my own. Went to the classes, but the classes were kind of useless. Not useless, actually the class, one class I went to was quite entertaining, but but yeah, still kind of not very useful, because you just have to memorize stuff. สติสัมปชัญญะธัมม์ธัมมิอุปการะมากสติกับ <coughs> I don't know, something like that. I have to memorize all of this, these, and these are the basics. I don't remember much more, but I had to take this exam. And uh, when it came time to take the exam, I took it with all the Nawaka monks. These monks who ordain Nawaka—we were we were all Nawaka at the time, I think. I don't know if I, I guess I was still Nawaka. Uh, new monks, but these were the monks who ordained only for three months and then they disrobed, so they weren't taking it all that seriously. And they had help from the senior monks. So when it came time to take the exams, we're sitting in the exam room, and the big head monk who is, uh, you know, is an important monk who's supposed to look look. Look over us and and be the you know the exam what do you call the the to what the person who the examiner I don't know the person who watches to make sure we don't cheat. He came into the room and he says, "Okay, uh, no tucharit. Tucharit is ducharita. Charita is, is behavior. Do is bad behavior. So tucharit translates to cheating. Yeah, tucharit," he said and then he walks out leaves the room as soon as he leaves the room well within 5 minutes one of the the monks who looks after the new monk came into the room and started going around to the tables answering all their questions giving them all the answers and so they started so i'm sitting i'm sitting here and the guy in front of me is sitting there and the two of us uh, are, are you know the real we were the long the long-term monks who were really you know interested in passing this exam and having it kind of mean something so we're sitting there, and and then there'd go up one side of the room. There'd be someone saying, "What is this? What is that? What is jhana? What is what are the Lokutra dhammas? What is?" And so I'm sitting there, and just for fun, I shout, I, I I say out fairly loudly, I say, "What does ducharit mean?" <laughs> <laughs> and the monk in front of me turns around and he's going to answer to me, and I say, "Oh no, I was just kidding." And as soon as I said that, the room quieted down. Four four days, I think, or three days, we had to take three different or four different exams. It's not easy. It's not that difficult. It wasn't easy for me because the final exam was you have to write an essay, just like three pages, I think, or four pages, in Thai. And you have to. They give you a. They start you off by giving you a quotation. And ours was uh, a person who has mindfulness is always is is every day awesome or something like that. Sati can't remember the exact quote. Anyway, they give you the Pali and the and the tie, and then you have to start off. You start off by saying uh, it's a very standard. You have to memorize the introduction, saying that you're going to now explain this in detail to. Uh, for the purpose of cultivating wisdom and for the purpose of helping practice, helping people practice. And then you start explaining the the verse. So, sati is this, da-da-da-da-da-da, and why is it make someone special, da-da-da-da-da. And then somewhere in the middle, you have to bring up another verse, and then you talk about that verse. The verse has to be somehow related. So, meanwhile, you've memorized a bunch of verses, one from, you've got this book of verses and you memorize these verses, like one or two from each section. So you've got a, a, a various number of verses that you can pull up, that you can fit. And so you fit it in with the first verse. I don't remember which one I used. Uh, and then you talk about that. And then finally you summarize at the very end. It's quite interesting. It's very formal. And uh, when I came out, I was, I guess I was feeling kind of naughty. So the head, the, the head monk who was sitting out front, he said, Oh, Noah, you're here. How did you do? And I said, Oh, I did really well. I wrote it all in English. <laughs> and, and his eyes bulged and he said, You can't do that. Who's going, who's going to market? it? And I said, Oh, I'm just kidding. Probably shouldn't have done that. But yeah, those were the days. An exam proctor, no? More questions?
1: Yes. I see people going to Buddhist temples to pray for personal gains, whether it be a new job to get rich or for their family's health, etc. Isn't praying for these things as a Buddhist at a Buddhist temple against Buddhist teachings? Shouldn't it be the role of the monk to teach that these beliefs are not in line with Buddhism? In other words, Buddha is not a god who grants wishes.
0: Yeah but you see when they pray they also give donations. I'm right, sorry that's probably not nice to say but it's true. The problem big problem in Buddhism is money has come in. Monks started using money and let me explain how that it's not as obvious as you might think. There's nothing wrong with using money. I mean money is just paper so what's wrong with that? But money being the current being As powerful as it is, it gives the monks freedom to do a lot of things. It also, looked at in a different way, it gives responsibility. So the monks begin, the monks, if the monks are given money, the implication is. That it's now the responsibility of the monk to go and get what they need. I mean, it's not looked at that way. You look at it as it's freedom. You're giving this monk power and freedom to get whatever they want. I don't know what the monk wants. How should I know? I don't come to the monastery. I come here to pray and then I go. Give him money. He can do what he wants with it. He's satisfied. Good. Now we can do our thing. This kind of attitude, besides being horrible, you know, terribly uh, non committal and. Um, you know, distant from from the monastic environment, which in turn allow, gives the monks the freedom to behave however they want because they're no longer at all connected with lay, the lay people or they're very, very little connection. Um, so anyway... Um, gives them, it's thought to be given them the freedom, gives them the responsibility. So now from the point of view of the monk, which they don't realize this either, they now have to go and buy this and buy that, which means not only using money, but going out to stores and buying things or you know, doing whatever you have to do. Whereas the idea was monks would get bare necessities and lay people would offer them food to keep them alive. And that would be that and you know the monks not using money had to be content with whatever they had with with whatever they had but had the freedom of not having to go to the stores and worry about buying things and so on so once the monks begin to do this um, they lose support because the lay people are are distant and no longer interested and so the monks begin to get a little bit desperate and they have to do things like fundraise you know because also due to the fact that money leads to, you know, power, which leads to corruption and leads you to be, to want things. Once you have money, you start to think, what can I get with that? And it's not always functional. If you're not enlightened, it it encourages desires. Oh, maybe I can get this. And whatever you want, you can get because you've got money. Then the money runs out. You start to live outside of your means and so you want more. And so like anyone who wants money, you find ways of getting it. And the ways of easiest way to get money is it seems, it's short-sighted, but a quick way to get money is just to say whatever, to say something that gets people to do some ritual. Oh yes, when someone dies, I'll do chanting for you. It's easy. I do chanting and then you pay me. It's basically how it happens. I go to funerals here even and they try to give me money. We The last funeral I went to, right, last weekend, we get in the car and the guy, guy tries to hand me a $50 bill <laughs> just as we're leaving. Oh, no. Um, so, but the funny thing is, the monks have actually shot themselves in the foot because if they didn't touch money, the lay people would be interested in the monastery. You know, and be like, oh, he doesn't have money. We have to keep him alive. So then they'd be like, oh, he needs this and he needs that. And he'd be like, why don't you have sandals? Well, because I, you know, what? I, they broke. Well, why don't you buy? I don't know, use money. Oh, well, let's get them some sandals. And the thinking arises, and so people get interested. You know, we were talking earlier about what? About getting a grant, right? Or the organization Robin mentioned, and not. it's not criticizing Robin, but it's a, it's a, it's a fine idea to look into getting grants for the meditation center. But I said, I mean, I'm not the one doing the, all this. I'm not the one with the money doing the money thing for the organization but I said it it's probably preferable I mean and when I originally said it it sounded like I just wanted to cut off a source of funding but I said it's not even that when you start to look for grants and do things like that when you're looking for money um, people start to realize start to understand oh yes they have a money plan and they have plans to get money which is going to you know pay for all their expenses and so on and this distances people takes others out of the equation Um, when you when when you uh, allow for need to arise and you take the stance instead that if the needs are not met we will shut down then it actually encourages and it it creates a whole different atmosphere where it becomes everyone's project. And and not only that, I mean, it's not that it makes it easier. It, it does generally make it easier to support a monastery in my mind, but um, easier because you don't have to worry all the time about money. How are we going to find it? But also it's fair and it's honest because it says we don't have enough support. It, it potentially says we don't have enough support to continue this. And so we're going to shut down. We're only running because people want us to run. And when that stops, We we will shut down, and we will. And I think that's more honest, to shut down, to say we don't have enough funding, people are not supporting us enough, our, our expenses aren't met, we'll stop. Even to the point of starving, I think. I think the point would be if a monk didn't get food, he would do what these Indian ascetics do. I mean, people were doing it in the time of the Buddha, starving. They would starve themselves on purpose. Now, it wouldn't be on purpose, but... a legitimate practice to let yourself die because you're not getting any food i think it's hardcore most people eyes bulge when they hear such a thing but anyway what was the question again
1: the question was uh, when people lay people go to the temple and they pray for all these things so they pray for good health and good finances and all that
0: So I'm giving an explanation as to, from my point of view, why it happens. And people get stuck in this trap, and they get stuck in the belief that they need to raise money. So I would criticize the monks in that way, that they're complacent because they feel like they need to do these things in order to... Because people would, would absolutely, at this point, if they stop doing those things, they lose supporters. People would stop coming to the monastery. There's no question. Their monastery might even have to shut down many monasteries temples whatever you want to call them would have to shut down if they stopped doing these things they just wouldn't be able to support but they've they've gotten themselves painted themselves into the corner they've started in the wrong direction people were were telling me that there's no way I could go without money there's no it, it would just be impossible you can't do that in modern times why because well you can't do the things that you need to do even good monks were saying this my teacher said it to me actually Um, power to him I mean later I mean but it's you know sometimes he says things it seems to me says things because that's what he's supposed to say because he's a big monk because he's trying to create harmony I was totally disharmonious is that a word Um, discordant because I was the only monk in the monastery one of there was another monk but he he was forced out eventually as well he was a good monk but he was forced out because he had views and so on But um, I was a monk who, you know, I was ordained at this monastery. And when I stopped using money, I had the whole monastery. You know, there was a wall of hatred. I could feel this wall of hatred because I stopped using money. And there's a point there. You shouldn't have practice that is fundamentally different from the monks in your monastery. I shouldn't have been there. But what could I do? I wanted to be with, I was actually quite happy even with all this hate directed towards me because I was with my teacher. I could be with him. But he saw it, and he was trying to convince me to fit in with the other monks. But later on, he, ha- did, he did end up saying something. When I went somewhere else, see, when I went to live in the forest, he, he, he said, do it, Stop. don't use money. Totally, he said, this is the problem. Monks get caught up in money, and then they don't practice. They're just always thinking about money. So I want you to do this. Don't use money, he said to me directly. So, I mean, we had an understanding. But um, the point being, there was a point, I've just forgotten it, that um, monks paint themselves into the corner.
1: Well, from the point of view of the lay people, I mean, should, should lay people even think that that's a thing to go and pray for, you know, fine, good finances and good right. health and things? I mean, is that, is that a legitimate thing that a, a lay person should do?
0: Yeah, no, I, I'm, I'm not quite there yet. I will get oh, there. Sorry. But um, the, the the point is the difference between practice. Right, so I was talking about myself um, because it's a source of, of confidence for me. I will never touch money as a monk. It's just, there's no way you can convince me of it because I've seen that they're wrong. People who say this are wrong. You cultivate so much support. I mean, I had people... Someone said to me, "I had, I, I was just." They said, "One of the lay people said, you 'You're really good at getting support, getting people, cultivating confidence in people, sadhai in people.'" And it was because this was later when I was living in Los Angeles. They said, "You can't go on arms round," and I went on arms round, and people were saying, "You know, it's ridiculous." And in the end, they were, they were, they were almost in tears because I had to leave and go back to Thailand, because it changed the way people looked at things. The way people saw it, the um, way to be a monk. I was able and am able to travel around the world without any money. So all I just wanted to say is that if they stopped, because to me the question, I mean the question isn't about money, but that's what it boils down to. It's a question of money. It's, from your point of view, it's a question of wrong practice. So are these proper practices of Buddhism? But they've come from somewhere people understand the monks of all traditions they've been taught the right things they've been taught buddhism but how it's gotten so far removed to the point where we call these things temples and we're calling we call the monasteries temples and we call monks priests they're actually calling them priests now it's just a mistranslation but it fits you know what is a temple a place where you go to you know lift incense and go like this or whatever and what is a priest someone who leads you in prayer, leads you in ceremonies. That's all that we've become. I mean, many of us have become temp- priests living in temples, but there's a reason for it. And so I'm trying to give a little bit of a more detailed background. It's a misunderstanding and they're wrong because I, the, the the amount of support and encouragement and you know, dedication from people who, who are you know keen to help and just want to get involved you know hands on interest and support is just overwhelming totally off the charts and i see other monks scrounging and trying to find new ways to make money and so on because they're they're stuck they're stuck in the wrong point of view the wrong way of looking at things this this trying to get you know doesn't lead you to happiness money doesn't lead you to ha- lead you to happiness it doesn't lead you to heaven Right? What leads you to heaven? Think about that. So, now to the actual question. These are not practices of Buddhism. You know, these kind of rituals, to some extent they can be tolerated and they can be interpreted as as Buddhist. You know, um, recollection of the Buddha is always good. Some kind of physical act that is a means of Expressing reverence when you offer candles, incense, and flowers, but praying to the Buddha, wishing for things—it's a—it's—it's it's almost okay because it's kind of like we do a good deed, uh, and then we make a determination: may this good deed maybe be a support for X to occur. And that's kind of cool because it shows that. There's a basic understanding of karma. When you do good deeds, you get a good result. It's an understanding of cause and effect. You can't just pray to the Buddha. You have to do something good and then make a wish, through the power of this goodness, may I attain riches? May I have a child? This is people ask. So to that extent, it's okay um and when people pray at buddhist temples the idea was that they weren't going to pray to the buddha they were going to do it as a determination aditana that's what they do in thailand they call it aditana adh, so you aditana you make an aditana wish for something to happen based on the power of the merit that's how it's always been phrased and that's cool that's fine now, there's a question as to whether wishing for for riches or babies or that kind of thing is actually, useful. It's actually Buddhist. Probably not really. Um, but yeah, those. Uh, that's how it should be. If it it has devolved, and Buddhists are now praying to the Buddha, may Buddha grant me this, may Buddha grant me that. Praying to Kuan Yin, praying to Bodhisattvas and Buddhas, and. All these crazy things that are very, very much not Buddhist. Not my Buddhism, anyway. Okay, one point. Another point, shouldn't it be the duty of the monks to teach that these things are not Buddhist? So that leads back to my explanation. Yes, but money, no? (laughs) No. If you teach people not to pray, then they won't come to the monastery. All these, because many people aren't interested in meditation. Many people who call themselves Buddhists aren't interested in, in enlightenment. They're interested in bettering themselves, usually materially, maybe going to heaven. And it was like that in the Buddhist time as well. So the Buddha allowed for people to make this resolve. You know, people, and for the monks even to wish, may you go to heaven through the power of this good act. May you go to heaven. Even those kind of wishes are okay, you know. And praising uh, or explaining the path to heaven because that's what people want. They want to go to heaven. Let's tell them how to get to heaven. It's uh, one reason for allowing it. Does seem to be because it, you know, it, it it allows us to survive. These people want to feed us, so they want to go to heaven. Let's tell them how to get to heaven. The now it goes without saying that if those people were interested in practicing, if they were interested in meditation, then they should be taught meditation. But I think one thing that has to be said here is that we non-Buddhists or neophyte Buddhists, you know, new neo, neo-Buddhist, I guess you'd say, people who come to the game late, whether we were just because we we were not interested when we were younger, but those of us who didn't grow up steeped in the tradition we tend to think that somehow magically you can make someone buddhist and so we criticize monks who don't who are who are accepting of these sorts of practices and who allow them to continue and somehow seem to encourage them but that's really due to our own ignorance and our own naivety because if we try and many young monks do try to what do you call reform the sangha and they get nowhere they wind up with people angry at them avoiding them lay people stop coming to the monastery so to some extent that 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 behavior that i described before you have to encourage you you have a duty to it's proper to it's the correct response it's what the Buddha did if someone wants to go to heaven you teach them the way to go to heaven if someone wants to get rich to some extent you teach them how to get rich why do you do that? because you're teaching them the truth why is it proper? it's proper because it's helping them understand true cause and effect no cheating people doesn't make you rich no um, indulgence in pleasure doesn't lead you to heaven. Doing good deeds, helping others, overall, meditation leads you to heaven. So you see, it's it's not wrong. These sorts of things, to some extent, you know, things like charity, anyway, teaching the right way, is um, is is proper. And so there is that in what you're seeing. People are being encouraged to come, to pay respect to the Buddha, to give donations, to give offerings. That's all good. Giving, giving is good. Giving is a religious practice that the Buddha praised. But it becomes so much more, and what you're seeing, I would say, is a corruption based on the fact that the monks get caught up in this practice and start to see it as a means of income. And it becomes, you know, monks get very famous and there's so much. They find ways of making it seem like they're some holy man and then they have all these things that they they sell amulets or so on and they talk about different amulets. I mean, it's ridiculous what goes on. In Thailand, we watch this. It's just, you could write a doctoral thesis on this. This thing called the Chatukham. The Chatukham. Chatukham. Is a corruption of Jatukamma, I think. This, this, um, or Jatugama, maybe. This Hindu uh, angel, who was imported from Hinduism, and was said to protect a specific uh, chaitya or you know, pagoda in southern Thailand. And so, these people running that pagoda made these amulets. And they said, this, if you have this amulet, this angel will protect you, right? Ridiculous, but good way to make money. And then somebody famous picked one of these amulets up and somehow um, convinced people that this was this was real. This angel really does protect people. Maybe they had an experience, you know, a car accident where they didn't get hurt, etc., etc., and suddenly, like almost overnight, these it spread like wildfire through the whole country. And within six months, the whole country was wearing jatuka. And monks were pulling in money hand over fist. Monasteries in Thailand became so rich off these things. Anybody, any monastery throughout the country, that uh, called that that uh, what do you call pleat manufactured these uh, amulets, became rich overnight. It was ridiculous, obscene. It was literally, it was obscene. Just disgusting, you know, this kind of thing. There was one monk in central Thailand, very famous for being outspoken and sort of this kind of um, populist monk. So he taught a lot about environmentalism, recycling, uh, living simply. He was a student of Buddha Dasa, who was, you know, leaning in that direction. But uh, he did something really funny. He did something called chatukam. Kam meaning bite. So he made these cookies, <laughs> and <laughs> in the shape of an amulet, and uh, he called them Jatukam, Kam meaning bite. He said you can eat it in four bites. But funny that Kam, Kam not only bite, but it's a it's a it's interesting how the word evolved, but it literally means words, four words. So printed on the cookies, imprinted on the cookies, were four words. Um, akasa. these four words. And these are four teachings of the Buddha. So people were using these amulets to gain, to become rich. They say, you know, you have this amulet, you get rich, and good things come to you, every good thing comes through. And they ended up making huge statues to this angel. It's, even in Thailand now, it's ridiculous. It's evolved now. Now they're into Ganesha, and, Sh- and Ganesha mostly. Everyone has this elephant goddess, and, you know, the absurdity. Anyway. Um, so, yeah, people were thinking this. but he. So he said, you want to get rich? You guys want to get rich? Try my Jatukam." These four words four four bytes will make you rich because they really will this is the buddha's teaching U means utana sampada if you want to be rich you have to be you have to work hard utana means working hard you work hard you'll get rich you you you'll succeed araka sampada Ah is araka sampada you have to be um, possessed of the ability to to save to economize, you know, don't uh, guard your possessions, for example, guard your possessions, but protect them, look after them, take care of things, don't just let things go to disrepair. So the opposite of, you know, working to gain money, you know, protecting the things that you have, taking care of the things you have, taking care of your car, your house, your your body, I mean, all these things. U uh, a ka means Have good friends. If you have good friends, you'll succeed. If you're surrounded by good people, they will support you. This is how nepotism works. You know, nepotism comes from a good idea of helping each other, working together, like the mafia. How successful they are! I mean, there's a reason why they're successful. It's turned corrupt. But having a family, having friends, very useful. Friends in high places, as they say but good friends, friends who will really care for you and so on. And sat means samadhibhita, not living outside of your means. Don't get credit cards, don't get in debt, you know, don't live outside of your means. Understand what your means are and learn to say no to yourself. These four things, and he made them, and he said, uh, you don't have to wear it because were, people were wearing these huge amulets around their necks. He says, you don't have to wear it around your neck. It won't make your neck sore, You are saying. There was a joke about these amulets. It's like, yeah, what is the result of having those amulets around your neck? You get a sore neck. And he said, just eat it. You get full, you yeah. and you don't have to hurt your neck. So some thoughts. Should lay people, Robin's question is maybe more interesting. What should lay people do? Should they do these things? Should they engage in these practices? To some extent. I mean, they're fun. They're not, harming it hurting anyone praying to the buddha no you should not pray to the buddha that's silly but you should revere the buddha and and offer your respect to the buddha image is great it's fine but then you should do good deeds and make a determination don't wish don't pray to the buddha just make a prayer may i be happy may i be free from suffering may i attain enlightenment may i have long life health happiness and strength those are all fine but have it based on your good deeds because that this kind of determination sets you in the direction of working towards those goals it's all fine determination is fine again this is well doesn't that isn't that based on desire no not necessarily it's based on a logic and reason that those things are useful helpful beneficial and you're not wish, you're not lusting after them you're just making a determination this is what i'm my goal is may i attain this when you think that it's called Aditana. it's a parami, it's a perfection. It leads you in that direction, it inclines you in that direction. Okay, I'm going to stop it there because it's too late. And I apologize, I know I didn't get through all the questions, but I think there's one left. Okay, we'll answer the last one. There's only one left, right, Robin?
1: Um, just, I think so.
0: So I'll answer that one, but no more. Any more, you have to wait next day.
1: Did the Buddha ever talk about Chakang, Tantra, or various esoteric arts that are used in meditation to reach altered states or higher states of consciousness? And what is a modern-day Buddhist's view on these practices?
0: I think this will have to wait. My brain hurts. No, it doesn't hurt. I'm just tired. I can't think anymore. See, well, it That shuts was, a, this that was a really be. good
1: answer. I mean, that should have been its own video. What one? your last answer there for the you know the the long answer that should have been its own video
0: we could turn it into one so you can ask that question again tomorrow my brain will be working again but it's the brain is an organ I don't eat in the afternoon so by this time at night it's a little bit you know, there are limits anyway I'm gonna say goodnight. Thank you all for showing up. Thank you, Robin, for being my co-conspirate co-partner. Oh, I had some idea about uh, so Ali is still set to come on Friday. It looks like he's gone. No, oh there he is. Ali's still here. So Friday we have our first guest. We're not calling it the monkly show. That was that's too too obscene, too crass. We'll come up with a better name. Someone come up with a better name for us or else it's just going to be Sirimangalo International Presents or something like that. Which is probably the best. We'll just call it Sirimangalo International presents, presents. SI Presents. No, it's not quite good enough. Someone come up with a good name. Post
1: it tomorrow. Okay, good night. Thank you, Bhante. You're